History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. While we are taking a break from the narrative... We also have an event coming up. Hopefully, some of you have at least heard the promos playing at the beginning of episodes recently for Intelligent Speech 2023. This is an online one-day conference this Saturday, November 4th, that will run all day, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I am presenting on two panels and giving a solo speech called Communes, Cults, and Caliphs to talk about the proto-communist movements of late antique Iran, and I really hope everyone will come join us for that. We have tons of great speakers, and if you're worried about missing out on anything, you will have access to all of the talks for a week after the conference to stream on demand at any time. Plus, if you come and listen to my speech, you might just catch a pretty big announcement about my plans in podcasting. But if that is not enough to get you to go to intelligentspeechonline.com and get your tickets using promo code PERSIA, you should listen to this episode, which is going to be a recording of my presentation about the Cyrus Cylinder from Intelligent Speech last year. Hopefully you all enjoy this little break from Alexandrian narrative for a while. And if you like it, go to intelligentspeech.com online.com and get your tickets using promo code PERSIA. Hey, Trevor. Nice to see you. Good to see you too. Face to the name. Yes. Yes. Well, so while we're waiting the next minute here for everybody to get in, um, I am your host, Jack. I um, do not work for Zoom, but I am here for support. So if you have any issues with the chat or anything like that, just message me and I'll see what I can do. Um, So I'll be monitoring the chat for questions and comments, just please keep it respectful. Um, This will be 20 minutes of presentation followed by 20 minutes of questions, as you're probably used to by now since we're more than halfway through this. Um, You can ask the questions by either typing them in the chat box and I will get to them, or you can raise your hand, but um, don't click on the Q&A button and type anything in there. And then this is Trevor Cully. He is the host of the 
a history of Persia podcast. So why don't you uh, go ahead, Trevor? All right. Well, uh, hello, everyone. Like Jack said, I'm Trevor. I host the History of Persia, which is really just what it says on the tin. I describe it as covering the history of Iranian empires from 700 BC to 700 CE. Uh, and today, I've got a little bit of a presentation, if it lets me bring that up. Just one. There we go. And here we are. So I have it as ancient Persian propaganda, past and present, uh, which is a big alliterative title to say that I'm going to be talking about how the same document has been used uh, for the last 2,500 years at different points to achieve different groups' political ends. Uh, so for this presentation, I do want to clarify what I mean by the word propaganda. Propaganda is really just any government messaging intended to convince you of something. People like to go straight to Goebbels or Stalin or whoever when they don't like the messenger and call it propaganda, but they probably don't think of the BBC or Saturday morning PSAs or frankly most Michael Bay movies. They should, but they don't. Propaganda is just anything where someone is trying to convince you from the government. There we go. Thank okay, you. great. So the other thing I need to get out of the way up top is the words Persia and Iran. Mostly for the last 2,500 years, Western sources can use the two interchangeably. Uh, the officially recognized name of Persia up until 1935 was the sublime state of Persia at which point uh, the ruling king of Iran, Reza Shah, asked all the people of the world to start calling them the imperial state of Iran. And with some minimal complaining, basically everybody got on board. Uh, Iran derives from an ancient ethnic name, the Aryans, that goes back more than 3,000 years, and Persia is the name of the original Persian home province, which is roughly equal to modern Fars, which is what I've got highlighted on the presentation there. But the story I want to start with doesn't actually even start in Iran. It starts in modern Iraq near Mosul with the destruction of the ancient Assyrian capital at Nineveh. In 612 BC, the Medes and Babylonians formed an alliance against the people who had oppressed them for the last 300 years and cut through Assyrian territory before putting Nineveh itself to a siege. When they broke through the defenses, they looted, pillaged, murdered, and finally burned everything they could so thoroughly that when archaeologists dug the city up 2,500 years later, there were still skeletons laying in the streets. So with the fall of Nineveh, the Near Eastern political situation goes from something like this to something more like this. And after the fall of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonians, you can kind of see, took over most of what used to be Assyria while the Medes 
stayed mostly out of that business. But they started pushing on each other, and this is also around the time when the Babylonians uh, captured Jerusalem and sent the Jewish people into exile. Uh, and through some of the conflicts of this period, the Babylonians even built a border wall to try and slow down a potential Median invasion. But then in 553 BCE, something happened. The Medes don't really seem like they had a centralized government. It was more like a confederation where the king was marginally more important than all of the other kings. But one of those less important kings was Persian, ruling the region of Parsa from the city of Anshan, which was already about 2,000 years old. His name was Cyrus, and Cyrus rose up against his Median overlords. Sometime over the course of the next three years, the Median army actually mutinied and went over to Cyrus, allowing him to take over the entire kingdom of Media for himself. We don't know a whole lot about Cyrus's early life, and most of the sources do agree that the king of the Medes was his maternal grandfather. That's kind of it, though. But it's not the important part. Over the next decade, Cyrus consolidated his power in Media, making the old confederacy into more of a centralized Persian empire, and expanding outward. Sometimes this is also called the Achaemenid Empire, for reasons that could take up their own 40-minute presentation, but I'll probably toss that word around, so I thought I should point it out. Over the next couple of years, he conquered all of Anatolia in the West, basically modern Turkey. And in the East, he pushed into Afghanistan and Pakistan. All of that alone would be enough to earn him the title Cyrus the Great, but he wasn't done yet. Down in Babylon, everyone was initially pretty relieved because they thought Cyrus would spell the end of Median power. They weren't expecting this to be the beginning of a much more powerful new state. The sudden rise of Persia coincided with the king of Babylon, a guy named Nabonidus, taking a 10-year sabbatical in northern Arabia. So the Middle East went from something that looks like this to something that looked like this in a hurry. Nabonidus wasn't very popular in the first place. He may have been half Assyrian, and he kept trying to install the moon god named Sin as the new high god in Babylon, while stilting the traditional Babylonian king of the gods, Marduk. Spending a decade in a sacred moon temple in Arabia while Cyrus built up his strength wasn't a good look. And the Persians may actually have started chipping away at Babylonian territory a lot earlier. But the historical sources pick up in 539 BC when Nabonidus rushed back to Babylon to help prepare for war. Cyrus was marching south into Babylonian territory from Media almost unopposed. One singular army tried to halt him at the city of Opus, somewhere near modern Baghdad, 
And not only did Cyrus defeat them in the field, but he chased them into the city walls and wiped out the whole army before continuing on to Babylon. On that trip down, most of the rest of the cities just surrendered. Preferring to look like a liberator rather than a conqueror, Cyrus waited while his generals led the army, and all they had to do was force open one gate on the eastern side of the city, and the Babylonians just let them in. Unlike the destruction of Nineveh, the Persian occupation of Babylon was mostly peaceful. Nabonidus tried to flee, but he was captured and never heard from again. Whether he was killed or just locked up or got a cushy retirement job somewhere in southern Iran, we don't know. How Cyrus pulled off the shockingly bloodless coup de grace is a mystery. We don't have any Persian records from Persia at this point, and the Greek and biblical accounts that we sometimes rely on couldn't imagine how Cyrus could do this bloodlessly and made up their own stories. But the Babylonian sources are all consistent about the story. It was peaceful. And none of them still reveal why Babylon surrendered. But the most famous one presents a fantastical version of the story. And this is the Cyrus Cylinder. It was a message from Cyrus the Great to the people of Babylon. And the actual clay tube that archaeologists first discovered was buried in the foundations of the Temple of Marduk, which was an old Mesopotamian tradition. But the same message was reproduced and read out in public. The proclamation told the story of Cyrus's rise in Babylon as a servant of Marduk, god of gods and patron of the city itself. According to the cylinder, King Nabonidus spurned the temple of Marduk in favor of the moon god and was trying to make Marduk abandon the city. The implication is that Babylon would then have fallen to ruin if he succeeded, but instead Marduk scoured the earth and found a suitable replacement. And all of my translations today are going to come from Matt Waters' very recent translation of the cylinder because it was open on my desktop at the time. The story goes like this. Marduk searched thoroughly for a just ruler, one who he favored in his heart. Marduk took him by the hand, this Cyrus, king of Anshan. He summoned his chosen one, named him to rule over all. Marduk compelled Gutium and the Medes to bow at Cyrus's feet. All of humankind Marduk delivered into Cyrus's hands. Cyrus assiduously shepherded the truth and justice. Marduk, the great lord, nurtures his people, joyfully discerning Cyrus's good deeds and his righteous heart. That is the only explanation for why Babylon opened its gates. Cyrus was the chosen one of their god, so they had to. The best assessment that historians can offer is that this reflects a real story of the priests of Marduk acting as a fifth column and turning the people and the nobility against Nabonidus. The cylinder also has elements of praise and propaganda to build up Cyrus and tear down Nabonidus. By describing the outlying cities of Babylon, it says, the gods who dwelt within them abandoned their temples 
angered because Nabonidus compelled them, meaning like the cult statues, into Babylon. Marduk, the august lord of the gods, then turned toward their dwellings, which he had abandoned. But then a few lines later, we get this other passage, which describes how Cyrus released the gods and cared for the sanctuaries, relieving people from their bondage because Marduk was telling him to. So rather than harming any gods or people, Cyrus actually relieved the suffering masses of Babylon. And from there it goes up or goes on to hype up Cyrus with some routine king stuff about how everyone brought him treasure and tribute and he had all of these lovely royal titles. And it wraps up with some kind of disconnected feeling boasting about important building projects. We can see in this proclamation, proclamation a message that Cyrus was not a conqueror, but he was there to restore Babylon and bring it into a wider world, which was all sanctioned by Marduk, king of the gods. Divine inspiration aside, none of that really seems to be a lie. Cyrus was renowned across many later historical sources for his generosity to the defeated, and the physical evidence from Babylon mostly agrees with his peaceful claims. The biggest falsehood seems to be exaggerating how neglectful Nabonidus was, which is pretty par for the course when you're trying to tear down your enemies. Cyrus died in 530 BCE, fighting somewhere on his northeastern frontier. Whether that was fighting the fearsome Dahai Confederacy, a blood-drinking warrior queen, or Indian elephant riders depends on what source you're reading. The empire he built lasted for another 200 years of ups and downs until Alexander of Macedon, another the Great, conquered it and got to call himself King of Asia for all of a minute before his successors tore it apart. Over the next few centuries, Babylon was basically lost to history before colonialist European archaeologists got permission from the Ottoman Empire to dig it up in the 1800s. Too far. One of these digs was sponsored by the British Museum, and in March 1879, they uncovered the Cyrus Cylinder bringing it into the light for the first time in more than 2,400 years. The archaeologist leading this dig, I think, deserves some special note, because despite working for the British Museum, he was actually a native Assyrian from northern Iraq. Hormuzd Rassam was probably the first Middle Eastern archaeologist, and in addition to the Cyrus Cylinder, he also gets credit for discovering the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, in and of himself, his life story would also make for another 40-minute presentation. While Rassam kept working in Iraq, the cylinder was sent back to Britain to be translated, and the Cyrus cylinder caused the biggest stir out of most of the artifacts he found. Of course, that's a stir in the ancient history community, so it was still pretty small as cultural stirrings go. In addition to being a source for Cyrus the Great, late 19th and early 20th century Jews and Christians were especially interested in how the Cyrus Cylinder 
seemed to validate the biblical narrative for the same period, especially if you squint at it in just the right way. Cyrus the Great is credited with freeing the Jews from their captivity in Babylon, though most of the actual migrating back to Judea happened a couple of decades later. Some lines from the Cyrus Cylinder about being chosen by Marduk and how he triumphantly entered Babylon do bear a striking resemblance to Isaiah chapter 45, which was written around the same time and describes similar events. However, biblical scholars also latched on to another part of the Cyrus Cylinder, which is that quote I read before, within Babylon and all its sanctuaries, I diligently cared for their well-being as for the people of Babylon and those who neither in accord with divine will nor destiny were forced to bear hardship until I soothed their fatigue. I just told you that this is about Cyrus treating the Babylonians and their cult idols well instead of looting their homes and temples. That is how historians interpret it, but in the late 19th century, it was given new life as a description of how Cyrus allowed people who had been deported to return home, most especially in the case of the ancient Judeans. That's not what it says historically, and it shouldn't be. It was a very targeted message for the people of Babylon. The exiles did return home, but the actual proclamation where Cyrus ordered that is lost to us. But it hasn't stopped almost 140 years of religious readers from reinterpreting the Cyrus Cylinder. And it's that interpretation that helped lay the groundwork for the next and ongoing arc in the Cylinder's story. So if you fast forward about three quarters of a century to the imperial state of Iran, you find the 1953 coup d'etat in which Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi just barely clung to power. Over a conflict regarding oil rights mostly, there was a coup featuring some combination of the CIA, MI6, native Iranian anti-communism, and the likes of Kermit Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. But after all of that was resolved, Mohammad Reza Shah returned to Iran triumphant with only a few concessions, which included the Anglo-Iranian oil company changing its name to British Petroleum, as in the green fuel station that I can walk to from my house. For a moment, the pro-Western general who led the pro-Shah coup looked poised to become the real power behind the throne, but Mohammad Reza put a stop to that quickly and began a series of top-down reforms. He banned major opposition parties, and he started playing international interests off of one another. It was a big turnaround from his early life as a kind of timid ruler, which is how you got that whole coup scenario. But a decade after the coup in 1963, he started what he called the White Revolution. This was a series of sweeping social and modernization reforms that included 
women's suffrage, environmental protections, selling both public and private stock to workers, price fixing, and free public education. And you can see here the very first time women cast their vote in Iran. These were all broadly positive ideas, but they were so sweeping and sudden that the rollout was shaky, haphazard, and uneven, and drove a lot of deficit spending in Iran. It drove criticism from both people who wanted to benefit but couldn't, and those who were naturally opposed, like landowners and the conservative clergy. Ultimately, these policies had to be held up by brutal crackdowns, and it was a period of simultaneous social progress and repression. But part of this included a revival of the Cyrus Cylinder. The Shah delved deep into the history of the Achaemenid Persians, and in 1963, he published a book laying out the program for his white revolution with this passage that you see on the screen. Uh, the book has never truly been translated into English, so this is my own translation based on some shaky OCR. So bear with it just a little bit. The history of our empire began with the famous Declaration of Cyrus, referring to the Cyrus Cylinder, which is the most brilliant manifestation of liberty and justice in all of human history. According to this charter, for the first time, the right to freedom of opinion and other human rights it concerned had to be given to all the peoples of imperial nations. These were freedom from looting and pillage, which was ex the accepted method, and slavery ended. Since then, this country has almost always been a shelter and refuge for all members of minorities of any kind. Which is a great concept, but basically everything in that paragraph is nonsense. Historically speaking, were Cyrus's conquests more lenient than some of his predecessors? Yes, but not remarkably so. He didn't end slavery or offer shelter to all minorities. He certainly didn't guarantee freedom of opinion or a concept that we could even equate to human rights. Nobody in antiquity did. Universal human rights, regardless of status, caste, and creed, are very modern concepts. And the earliest surviving suggestion to abolish slavery is from the 5th century CE, almost a thousand years later. But where Muhammad Reza Shah got this interpretation is basically anybody's guess. Looking strictly in the Cyrus Cylinder's text and history, the only explanation is that the same passage we've looked at before got reinterpreted. It's that passage about freeing the oppressed gods of Babylon and sending them back to their temples. But there is a fake translation that has circulated the internet that may have come before or may have come after Cyrus or Muhammad Reza Shah wrote the White Revolution. 
I don't love to put a ton of this fake translation out there, but it's worth pointing out just how abrupt the change is because the first half of the quote unquote fake translation is just the regular Cyrus Cylinder translation. And then this extra bit is tacked on. It suddenly switches from talking about Marduk and Anshan to Ahura Mazda and Persia. It switches genres from a narrative of deeds and accomplishments to a legal edict that would never be inscribed on a monument like this. Never mind lines like, I will never resolve on war to reign, or I will not oppose my monarchy on any nation. We're talking about a man who died trying to expand an empire by force. The whole thing very much reads like it was written by someone who knew about Persian history, but not much about the Cyrus Cylinder. The question that plagues people about this fake translation is whether it comes before or after the White Revolution. See, when Orhumuzd Rassam dug up the cylinder, a large chunk was broken off. Uh, we call this fragment B, but it wasn't actually identified as part of the cylinder until 1970. So we don't, there is room in the middle for the Shah to either have made up his own fake translation or somebody to have made up a translation for this missing chunk to reflect the Shah's position. And you can see there's not any great pictures of the actual fragment B, so you've got this big chunk missing from fragment A. The dramatic climax to all of this with the Cyrus Cylinder and the Shah's love of ancient history came in 1971 when Muhammad Reza Shah, who had since become Muhammad Reza Shahan Shah, Light of the Aryans, set out to celebrate the 2500th anniversary of Cyrus conquering Babylon which he portrayed as the true origin of Iranian political power, which I guess screw the preceding 10 to 100 years of conquests and monarchs before that, but this is what he went with. The Shah invited world leaders from every corner of the globe, including monarchs, dictators, presidents, premiers, and representatives of all sorts. Vice President Spiro Agnew was there, so was Prince Philip, and so was Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia and a truly staggering number of people who are now monarchs in Europe. Lavish ceremonies were held in Tehran for arriving dignitaries and a tent city was set up at the Persian capital of Persepolis where much of the Western ruins were actually bulldozed for the occasion. He gave a speech in front of Cyrus the Great's tomb at Pasargadai, which is remembered for this very dramatic line. O Cyrus, great king, king of kings, a Achaemenid king, king of the land of Iran, I, the Shahan Shah of Iran, offer you salutations from myself and my nation. Rest in peace, for we are awake and we will always stay awake. The whole celebration was intended to compare Muhammad Reza Shah to Cyrus and the ancient Persian emperors who ruled from India to the Mediterranean. But as part of this, you get 
the real final lasting legacy of the cylinder. In 1971, the Shah presented it with a copy of the cylinder itself to the United Nations as the first declaration of human rights. And to the eternal frustration of podcasters and historians alike, the UN happily accepts this gift and continues to recognize the claim on their websites to this very day. So this ends up being reflected in official UN publications and journalists and political scientists trying to write about human rights, they end up tacking on this document that is originally about how Cyrus is so much better than the King of Babylon. At the end of the day, for many people in Iran, especially those exiled for opposing the Shah, the 2,500-year celebration went several bridges too far. And it became, if not a cause, at least a rallying cry during the Islamic Revolution of 1979, which did bring the actual final end to Iranian monarchy after more than 3,000 years. But the legacy lives on in things like the UN preservation of the Cyrus Cylinder, and Cyrus's place as a modern nationalist icon in Iran, largely due to the Shah's Cyrus-based propaganda in the 1970s. And now I think we'll transition over to the questions. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing me with samples. Allergies. There are few things that make me feel worse more frequently. There are a few times a year when the trees bloom, pollen turns everything yellow, and my sinuses just seem to stop working. I feel miserable. I can't sleep without tossing and turning every few minutes. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been taking Claritin D for my worst allergy symptoms for probably 18 years, and it's an absolute game changer. I can fall asleep and still feel like I am able to breathe. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Okay, Derek, let's see if I can do this here. Derek has a question.
Here we go. Okay. There you go, Derek. Oh, perfect. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so uh, with this now with, uh, I guess, comparatively, was the uh, movement of the Shah influential in terms of, say, like uh, the neighboring later and later Saddam Hussein and his envisioning of rebuilding things like Babylon and, you know, reinstating that Iraq nationalism? Uh, or was this kind of like a unique circumstance? Because, I mean, when you look at Europe, you have very similar things like portraying like characters like Arminius or Boudicca. Uh, was the Shah like the first major attempt in the Middle East to try to call back to this pre-Islamic history as a rallying cry against maybe maybe even Western powers in the case of Saddam? I'm not sure if he was the first. Um, there are certainly elements of it in the early days of the modern Israel-Palestine conflict, too, on both sides. Um, but as one of the first major secularizing powers to kind of call on that legacy. Yeah, I think the Shah was the first, though I don't know how much you can directly tie that to some of Saddam Hussein's Babylon stuff. Okay, Cass Amini has a question. Go ahead. Oh, well, first of all, thank you, Trevor. Yeah, I've been a long time listening to the show. Really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, because um, it, 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 because I'm, my parents are originally from Iran, so I really appreciate you giving attention to it. But uh, I was wondering, like, what do you think? Because the Shah was educated in, um, uh, he, he was West, Western educated, so he was very familiar with like the um, Orientalist or Western take on these the, the Near East or India or places like this. So, and like Orientalism has a tendency to antiquate to sort of Sorry, antiquitize um, um, these, the, these regions as have been essentially conceived in the moment of their you know, conception. So how much of an influence you, you think he got from that to, to think that, no, this is the original identity of, the, of, of Iran and we're going to restore it? Or because the British did something similar in India where they defined a group of people as essentially Hindu and the others as Muslim, well, the, the truth was sort of like much more complicated than that. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, Iran was independent from colonial powers, but always underneath of them. And like you said, the Shah was, uh, I think, educated in France. So, the, he definitely took the stance that the Persian Empire is the beginning of Persia. And you know, within his own lifetime, that had been Iran had still been called Persia. So he definitely took the stance that this was some kind of historical ethnogenesis for his culture. Um, I just like pointing out that for some reason, he picks the end of Cyrus's conquests to yeah. uh, mark that period. And I guess it's sort of like, it sort of has a the teleological quality to it that this development was always supposed to end in universal human rights. So this sort of snippet that Grant sort of like said that yes, the Cyrus is not as terrible as the Assyrians is somehow 
always going to like it's preceded unit modern human rights by 2500 years which is you know it's it's taken up by pan iranius pan iranius activists much to my frustration as it's it's they they essentially latch on to this and say that no we're always sort of like this but no yeah yeah in regard to that um i actually have in here I have these two images, which I love as a comparison of in modern Iran of Persepolis still has the ruins of the original Western city Mohammed Reza Shah built on top of it. Uh, and simultaneously, you have Cyrus growing as this kind of nationalist, kind of youth icon. Um, and both of them are simultaneously expressions of very real things in the modern Iranian zeitgeist and an entirely ahistorical understanding of what Cyrus actually did. Yes, but exactly. I, I don't think that necessarily invalidates his use as a, his, as a icon any more than any other historical figure has been appropriated in any other culture. Yes. But again, like, it's kind of funny that most people who like quote the cylinder or like cite examples of his, you know, universal tolerance and uh, attach it to us to a, to a nationalistic sort of worldview don't know that many of the accounts we have of them are from Greek sources. So no, um, and I'll have a, a podcast episode of the, I did a write up on the Ask Historian subreddit uh, this, but there was a, a recent book that came out, and one of my big complaints about it is that it gave this presentation of telling the Persian version, uh, but kept telling stories from Greek sources, which is fine because that's what we have to do. It's where the stories are, but. Yeah trying to reimagine those as genuine Persian accounts from 2,400 years ago uh, is disingenuous at best. Um, okay, we have a, another question in the chat, it looks like. Yep. Um, uh, so how has the memory of ancient Persia and the cylinder changed since the Islamic revolution? So that's a good question. That's one of the reasons I actually included this slide uh, that I have it sitting on now. The Islamic revolution, you know, is kind of a misnomer because the actual process early in 1979 was all every anti-Shah faction trying to get their slice of a post-monarchy settlement. Um, but at, you know, over the next year and a half or so after the actual revolution, as the mullahs solidified power, there was a push to destroy sites like Pasargadai and Persepolis. Um, I don't remember the name of the specific cleric, but uh, one of the revolutionary clerics was leading bulldozers to Persepolis and was only stopped because the local people, you know, turned out in droves to block him off. Um, and, you know, at Pasargadai with Cyrus's tomb, UNESCO had to intervene quickly to make it 
a violation of international law to damage the site. Uh, you know, this all happened in the course of weeks. Um, but then, you know, in the in years immediately following the revolution, things about the Achaemenids and the pre-Islamic past went silent for a couple of decades. And then uh, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, all of a sudden it starts kind of creeping back and it, you know, the symbolism and, you know, things like the Faravahar starting more and more as part of the, you know, secular Iranian nationalist movement as the Islamic elements of the revolution become less and less appealing. Uh, and that, you know, the big culmination of that in recent history was what I have here on the presentation, the 2016 Cyrus the Great Day revolt, which was this big, you know, civil disobedience mass protest movement that spawned from the unofficial celebrations of Cyrus the Great Day, which marks that conquest of Babylon um, as a sort of unofficial holiday in Iran. And today it's very contentious uh, because, you know, things, the, the tomb of Cyrus itself is blocked off and put uh, a revolutionary guard presence in the ruins of Pasargadai and Persepolis on that day every year because it's kind of this emblem of secular nationalism in Iran. That is time, guys. So, um, Trevor, thank you for your presentation. You're welcome. Uh, and I'll jump over to the chat room if uh, people like Charles want to keep asking questions. Thank you. If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things, including the support page, to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.